guys, welcome to another edition of Tim's Takeaways. That's right, today we're going to discuss some respiratory emergencies. So, uh, earlier, you should have hopefully listened to the airway management. There were three parts to that. And today, we're, we're for this episode of Tim's Takeaway, we're going to take a look at respiratory emergencies. So now you have a little bit of a background as to how you want to start treating our patients. And as we described earlier in uh, the airway management portion, that a you know dealing with people who are short of breath is pretty much one of our most common things, in particularly in West Central Pennsylvania, because we had a lot of coal mines, we had a lot of steel mills, and a lot of our patients who are older are experiencing issues as a result of a lot of that work a long time ago. So it is something that we uh, get to come across quite often. And your book, your um, uh, some tests and some information you're going to come across is going to bring up the word dyspnea. And when you bring up the word dyspnea, what we're looking at is, is a shortness of breath or somebody who's having difficulty breathing. We're talking about those things being essentially one and the same. So trying to find out exactly what the condition is or what the problem is as it relates to their dyspnea or their shortness of breath really can become quite difficult to figure out. And as we go through here, you're going to find out that patients don't always just have one issue going on. And that's probably one of the issues that uh, we have in our education system is that we're teaching you each individual skill or each individual um, disease. But when it comes down to things, um, patients usually are complicated, much more complicated in the real world where they have multiple issues that are ongoing. And it's really tough sometimes to wade through there and figure out what's going on. But the good news is that you're not alone and uh, really Everybody in healthcare usually has a little problem with this, and uh, that's why more tests come out to try to identify exactly what conditions may be going on with patients. But in the EMS world, we are limited to a lot of our stuff, and that means that getting a good history, finding out what the patient's complaining of, utilizing a tool such as a pulse oximetry, um, you know, listening to breath sounds and stuff like that and understanding what disease processes do and how they work really allows us to be pre pretty accurate uh, when we apply all of those tools. Um, so if you recall, we talked about, and I keep on saying recall, so you should have received the airway stuff first, right? So if you go back and look, uh, we had talked about inspiration and expiration, and really that's just the way that as you're breathing, you know, during respiration, we're talking about oxygen is put into the blood and carbon dioxide is removed. So when things are normal and healthy adults or even healthy children, this gas exchange is occurring pretty quickly. And remember that this is occurring at the alveoli level. That's where that gas exchange is starting to occur. So it passes freely through a lot of the, the alveolar wall, and it gets into the capillaries. Um, and it is carried to the heart and pumped throughout the body. Now, carbon dioxide returns to the lungs, and then it's exhaled out of the body. 
So when we're dealing with this stuff, you know, the brainstem has the ability to sense uh, the levels of carbon dioxide that are actually inside the arterial blood. So if the level of carbon dioxide or CO2 drops too low, the patient starts to breathe at a much slower rate and they breathe less deeply. If, however, it is CO2 that is actually higher, the person starts breathing more and they breathe faster and they also breathe a little deeper. And this is when people are like, oh my gosh, they're hyperventilating. That's why we don't want to treat people who have hyperventilation by putting a bag over their face or over their mouth or anything because this may be a process that the brainstem has actually sensed that there's a problem we need to fix it. So we have that exchange of oxygen and carbon dioxide is to occur. But there are conditions and there are issues that are going to hinder that. You know, we can be talking about um, it, some type of abnormal or pathological conditions of the anatomy of the airway. It could be different disease processes. Uh, different, and let me go back. So if you're looking at a pathological or an abnormal issue, are we talking about uh, maybe somebody had a stoma that was placed in there. That could become a problem. Um, talk about a disease process, maybe things such as COPD or congestive heart failure or asthma. All those things are going to come into play here in a little bit. Traumatic conditions. Are we talking about somebody who had injured their chest and now they can't expand their chest process because of bruised ribs or broken ribs? And then we look at abnormalities that actually occur inside the pulmonary vessels themselves. So, you know, things maybe such as pulmonary hypertension can cause some problems with that as well. So, for us, we have to recognize those signs and symptoms of people who may have inadequate breathing. And then we need to figure out what to do about it. So, patients are going to have, um, you know, an elevated, at times, they're going to have elevated levels of CO2. And... You know, these people a lot of times are just COPDers. They have chronic lung disease. Other people that can have elevated levels of carbon dioxide, um, maybe people who are on chronic uh, opiate medications for pain. Now, what happens with these folks is if these levels of CO2 are remaining elevated for periods of years, the respiratory center in the brain may not function properly. So, therefore, the brain has to accommodate for these high levels of CO2. And then it uses a hypoxic drive, which is now the backup system, to really help control the breathing. And it's then based off of levels of, of oxygen. So if the levels of oxygen are low, it relies on a hypoxic drive, which is that quote, the backup system. So when we're talking about those folks, we have to be careful. And all the books and literature always talks about be careful with people giving them oxygen with COPD people. And, you know, it's two different processes, but most of the time in an emergency situation, we don't have to worry a whole lot about long-term use of it. But utilizing maybe about four liters of oxygen does help out with, with our folks quite frequently. Now, there are reasons that people can have dyspnea. And, um, you know, usually respiratory distress 
um, is going to be one of those things where you walk in and you talk to the patient and you find out they may have an altered mental status. This gives us an example or an indication that the patient may be hypoxic and their brain may be hypoxic. And this can happen as a result of different conditions such as pulmonary edema, hay fever. It could be pleural effusion, which is, um, and let me go back, pulmonary edema we'll talk about is going to be some fluid buildup that's actually inside the lungs and inside the alveoli. Hay fever, I think most people are pretty familiar with. Pleural effusion, you're talking about in the pleural cavity inside that chest, there's some fluid. There could be an obstruction of the airway, whether or not it is uh, the tongue or it could be a foreign body. People hyperventilate, they end up with what's known as a hyperventilation syndrome, and that can create a problem for us as well. Um, it may be some type of environmental or industrial exposure. Are we talking about different chemicals? Um, at the time of this recording, there's a, there's a fire burning in uh, Texas. It's from an oil refinery. You know, is that going to cause some problems in the future? What about the fires that are out in California every year? Or what about the constant eruption of volcanoes that, can, that are occurring in Hawaii? You know, those are environmental and toxic and industrial exposures we have to be aware of. Carbon monoxide poisoning, particularly in this area, here you're talking about whether or not people are using alternative sources of heat. Uh, maybe they're utilizing some different issues, such as uh, firing up their coal furnace or they, they turn off their furnace for the, sun, for the summer and they don't turn it back on until fall and they haven't done anything with it, so it doesn't burn efficiently. And this then can cause a problem with carbon monoxide poisoning. Drug overdoses, kind of alluded to that a little bit. But again, these are issues that can cause people to become hypoxic and can cause problems with difficult breathing. So when you have a couple of the following, you only need one of these, you may have a couple of them, but gas exchange could be obstructed. Maybe this is because the alveoli have collapsed. You know, when you take a deep breath, it's the whole idea of trying to expand those alveoli. It could be from some fluid in the lung. It could be from an infection or the alveoli just have collapsed. Whether or not the alveoli, another one could be the alveoli are damaged and they just don't have the ability to transport gases properly um, across their own walls. Other things may be um, airway passages are obstructed because Maybe there's a, a muscle spasm, so bronchospasms we can run into where the bronchioles are actually spasming some. Um, and then you start looking at mucus buildup, or you may have weak, weakened or obstructed passages that um, also have floppy airway walls. Blood flow may not get to the lungs, and it can be obstructed by blood clots. We have those as pulmonary emboli, which we'll see here in a little bit. And then you can take a look at things such as the pleural space where it could actually be filled with air or a lot of excess fluid um, and then the lungs therefore can't expand. So we'll talk about some different things that can go on with those as well. You know, shortness of breath or that dyspnea is oftentimes associated with things such as cardiopulmonary diseases. So anytime that we talk about cardiac issues, um, we want to also make sure that we're trying to assess for respiratory problems as well. So patients may have um, congestive heart failure. They may um, experience problems with the, with the inefficiency of the heart to pump well. So therefore, it, it then deprives the body of oxygen. 
Patients may have a lot of pain, so therefore it causes a, a shallow breathing. And they may not really have any type of pulmonary dysfunction, but because of the pain, they don't expand their chest well. We have other things such as lower or upper respiratory infections. And a lot of these things, you know, you're looking at um, could be from some type of obstruction, whether or not there's mucus or secretions that are obstructing the airflow in a lot of those passages. You know, this could be just from the common cold. Are you talking about swelling of some soft tissues that may be in the upper airway? This could be conditions such as epiglottitis or croup. Uh, there may be some type of gas exchange that's going to be impaired inside that alveoli for whatever reason, uh, maybe such as a pneumonia. So we have to be aware of a lot of these things. So let's take a look at a, a few of these things as, as we had just mentioned in relationship to some upper or lower airway infections. You know, croup is something that we usually see in kids between six months and three years of age. Um, and it's usual, so that means that it can go up a higher as well. Um, this is where they have inflammation and swelling in the pharynx and the larynx and the trachea. So they have a lot of inflammation that is ongoing. Epiglottitis, on the other hand, is a inflammation of the, epiglot of the epiglottis um, that is usually the result of some type of bacterial infection. So it's usually more dominant um, in children, but it also can occur in adults. And usually you see these kids that are in a tripoding position and they're drooling. And that usually becomes one of the key hallmarks there. You want to make sure that you're treating them properly. You want to treat them gently. Um, you don't want to aggravate them a whole lot because if you make them cry, it's going to cause more of a problem with that airway. Um, so we end up putting them in a position of comfort, giving them some high flow oxygen, but don't put anything in their mouth, right? Because we don't want to cause any more problems with that epiglottis. Uh, there's a thing that is known as RSV, which is a res respiratory syncytical uh, virus, uh, which is always, that's why it's hard to say, so that's why I call it RSV. And it is a common illness that is found in young kids that um, infect, has an infection in the lung and causes a problem also in the breathing passages. So here we have to look for kiddos that are um, also having signs and symptoms of dehydration. And we end up treating the airway and breathing as we find it. So if they have a problem with that airway and breathing, we're going to treat it as appropriate. Here's a, another one that is uh, very close to um, as a result of RSV, which is bronchiolitis. Um, and this is a viral illness and usually hits newborns and toddlers. And this is when the bronchioles become inflamed. They swell and they end up filling with mucus. Um, so we end up providing some oxygen to them. And then we end up uh, making sure that we have to reassess them to look for any types of issues with respiratory distress. Pneumonia has been mentioned a couple times. And really, that's something that um, is a general term. It really means that there's an infection in the lungs or in the lung. And usually, it's a secondary infection that begins after somebody has had a URI or an upper respiratory infection. Bacterial pneumonia um, comes on quick and usually results in some type of high fevers. Um, viral pneumonias, though, are more gradual and usually are less severe. So you can end up with a bacteria or a viral pneumonia. And these pneumonias really affect people who, become, who are chronically ill, um, and those who are also terminally ill. So it becomes important for us to make sure that during our assessment, 
We're uh, assessing for a fever. We're checking the skin. And just because you reach down and touch someone doesn't mean that's a way in which you're checking their skin uh, or checking for their fever. You need to take a temperature, right? So um, it's very good to make sure that we assess for that fever and see where it's at. So with these folks, we end up providing some airway support and, and supplemental oxygen. Now, pertussis, also known as whooping cough, is more of a bacterial infection. It's from it's an airborne bacterial infection and usually hits kiddos under the age of six. Um, they are a little feverish. They have a whooping sound when they cough. Almost sounds like a seal. It is contagious in it because if they don't cover their mouth, you know, the Dracula cough covering, um, it can be spread through droplet and um, infection. So just coughing in somebody's face can cause more of that problem. So again, here we have to watch for dehydration. And as with any of these, you also want to make sure that you're worried about um, can we suction somebody as a result of that? Do we need to provide some airway support? Influenza um, type A is more of an animal respiratory disease that has mutated to infect humans. So um, way back, uh, back in like 2009, so we're about, so when I'm making this, this is at 2019. So um, in 2009, now 10 years ago, there was a strain known as H1N1 um, became a pandemic, which means that it was a global outbreak. Um, people experienced fever, coughs, sore throat. They had a lot of muscle aches, headache, and fatigue. And the biggest issue here was that this was leading to a pneumonia um, or some type of dehydration. Tuberculosis is a bacterial infection that usually is affecting the lungs and it can um, be found in other organ systems as well. And one of the problems with TB is it can remain inactive for years and really doesn't produce any type of symptoms. But patients who do complain of some issues uh, when the symptoms do start is uh, they're going to have a fever, coughing, they become very fatigued, um, and they develop night sweats and a lot of weight loss. You know, TB is pretty prevalent in um, higher or actually in homeless people, prison inmates, people that are in nursing homes, um, people who abuse drugs, particularly IV drugs, and those that use alcohol. Um, and it also has been identified as being very high in those with HIV. So um, it is always one of those things that are in confined spaces. You know, a lot of people can exchange back and forth, and this is one of the reasons or why it spreads. So if you suspect that you have a patient who may have active TB, you need to at least wear your gloves and an eye protection and use an N95 respirator because Anytime that you use something like that, you need to make sure that it's between you and the patient. So that's one of the ways you make sure that that works. Acute pulmonary edema is probably one of the areas in which a lot of people get confused on. Um, and what I mean by that is that pulmonary edema comes in medical and not, or I'm sorry, cardiac or non-cardiac um, pulmonary edema. So there's a couple different reasons as to why somebody may develop pulmonary edema. Um, and a lot of times we end up talking about things such as congestive heart failure, um, which produces pulmonary edema, 
but um, it's because it's congestive heart failure or it's heart failure that makes the cause of the pulmonary edema to occur. So enough of giving you that overview, so let's take a look at, at some of those things with that. Pulmonary edema is usually the cause of the reason that the left side of the heart can't remove blood from the lung as fast as what the right side can deliver it. So basically, the right side's pushing it in, it gets into the lung, and the, and the left side of the heart just can't push it out fast enough, so it backs up. And that blood backs up inside the alveoli, and when this occurs, this is what we call now pulmonary edema, the blood that's actually backing up inside the alveoli. Most of the time, or a lot of the time, this is a result of congestive heart failure. Now, just to go back, the current terminology should be heart failure, but um, congestive heart failure is something that still is being used quite frequently. So, um, anyway, that actually um, is something that we need to take a look at at some point. Um, in cardiac, the cardiac section will talk more about the congestive heart failure, but... Um, just remember that it is the cause. It's usually the cause that is there. So patients usually experience some dyspnea. Uh, they have rapid, shallow breathing, and they may have, in really bad cases, some pink frothy sputum that comes out of their mouth or their nose. Um, patients here can have a long history of having uh, congestive heart failure, and a lot of times this stuff is just kept under control with medication. So um, I know one of the things that always seems to be causing some confusion for people is that congestive heart failure people live with all the time. Um, it's when it flares up or exacerbates, it gets worse, the condition gets worse, is where they run into a problem. So in this case, what we're talking about is that people that have chronic congestive heart failure means it's been going on over a period of time. It's usually kept under control with some of the medications. When we get to deal with these people, a lot of times we say they're in acute heart failure, meaning that it's just something that happened right now. But not all patients who have pulmonary edema are going to have heart disease. So it could be the result of high altitudes. It could be the result of um, toxins that are introduced into the environment or into the body um, that can cause people to, do, to have a problem like that. You know, another common issue that we're going to run into, and we started talking about it a little bit ago, is COPD, which is that chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, where this is something that's more of a slow process of um, the dilation and more disruption of the airways, and it actually causes more of a problem with the alveoli um, and also causes a problem with some of the bronchial obstructions that we're going to see. Now, COPD, um, everybody kind of says, oh my gosh, look, look at, you know, what is it? Um, COPD actually is more or less a, a big term that encompasses um, if you lung diseases. Those are usually things that we look at at emphysema and chronic bronchitis. So a lot of this is related to tobacco smoke um, because it's been a bronchial irritant and it can create what is then going to be referred to as the chronic bronchitis. And this is where you have an ongoing irritation of the trachea and the bronchi. And with bronchitis, which is normal, it has a lot of excessive mucus that's built up. Um, and this then obstructs some of those small airways and gets all the way down into the alveoli. 
So the airways are weakened because the lungs protective devices are now destroyed. So chronic oxygenation problems start to lead to right heart failure and they start to build up fluid retention. So this is why you will hear a lot of times people who have chronic bronchitis as being the blue bloaters because they have a little more of an issue of right heart failure. They have the fluid retention. And in these folks, pneumonia develops pretty quick for them. And if there's a lot of episodes that continuously be, are repeated, um, there's more pneumonia, which causes scarring, and um, this starts to cause more problems inside the alveoli, and then eventually this leads to what we now know today as COPD. Now, emphysema is more likely to be the most common type of COPD. This is where there's a loss of the elastic material that is around the uh, alveoli. So it is where the alveoli are supposed to be able to stretch and, and be able to uh, uh, come back together. The problem here is, is that it cannot stretch very well or it can't compress very well, I should say. So smoking is one of those areas that actually destroys the elasticity of the lungs. So even though we break them off and we say, oh yeah, you have emphysema versus, versus uh, chronic bronchitis or a pink puffer, which is more along the lines of an emphysema versus a blue bloater who is that chronic bronchitis, we like to think that there are two separate areas, but the reality is, is that patients have um, both disease processes that are ongoing. Hence the reason why I probably put them in a COPD area. Now, you will also hear people talk about wet lungs versus dry lungs. So hopefully we can fix some of that, right? So um, patients with pulmonary edema, usually uh, this is often caused by that congestive heart failure, which we talked about earlier. Those are folks that are going to have the, quote, wet lungs. Those are things such as ronchi and crackles. Okay. And patients with COPD usually have more of a dry lung, which is now more about the wheezing. So if you can think of wet lungs, you got to think of more pulmonary edema. If you think of the dry lungs, you're thinking more along the lines of COPD. But again, things are not always black and white as we're making it seem. Um, they could have factors that are going in here with both issues. So don't assume, though, that all COPD patients are going to have wheezing and that all congestive heart failure patients have rails. Um, as I just said, it's not always black and white, and it can create a little bit of a problem for us later on. Now, um, one of those other areas that kind of hits in here, and, and um, I talk about this sometimes in class and say that, you know, it depends on who you read, asthma, um, really by definition could fall into the COPD. Um, some people put it in there, some people don't. Um, so asthma sometimes just kind of like stays out there on its own. And uh, it put it into an area such as asthma, hay fever, and anaphylaxis, which can really cause problems and result in some type of an allergic reaction. And this could be anything that has been injected into the person. Uh, maybe they've inhaled it, or maybe there's something that they've actually just drank or eaten. Now, asthma is a acute, or is an acute spasm of the bronchioles. And this is where there is some excessive mucus production and swelling. And this is occurring in the mucus lining of the respiratory passages. 
Usually it's affecting the kiddos uh, initially between the ages of 5 and 17. And it is producing usually a wheeze where it's uh, partially, where you're seeing that it's partially obstructing the airway. Now, in allergic reactions or asthma attacks, um, the we try to look for or uh, medical. When I say we, 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 as in trying to look at medical professionals, try to find what the allergen is, and that is what is actually causing the problem. Now, a lot of these t attacks for people that are having asthma are related to exercise or maybe a respiratory infection or can also be from some type of emotional distress as well. In its most severe form, um, when we get into allergies, and we'll talk about an entire chapter on those later on, we talk about that actually being a going from an allergic reaction to an anaphylaxis. We also have uh, uh, rhinitis, so you're looking here like more along the lines of hay fever, right? So there are the cold-like symptoms. You get a runny nose. You have some congestion. You got a lot of sinus pressure that's going on up there, and you sneeze your head off. So these are um, oftentimes caused by some type of allergic reaction, whether it be outdoor airborne allergens. You know, you hear the pollen count is up. Those are things that you're taking a look at for hay fever. Anaphylactic reactions are going to be more severe reactions that are characterized by some type of severe airway swelling and dilation of the blood vessels. And they have a lot of similar um, signs and symptoms as related to asthma. So the airway can swell and it may also cause some total obstruction. And when we're talking about an anaphylactic reaction, our number one choice for treatment besides the oxygen in these folks is going to be the administration of epinephrine. And that's usually given intramuscularly. Um, with all of these conditions also poses the risk that somebody may develop what is going to be referred to as a spontaneous pneumothorax. A pneumothorax is a uh, partial or at least total accumulation of air inside the pleural space. Remember, the pleural space is going to be inside that chest cavity. Most common, it's usually related to trauma. Um, but it may also be something that is going to be a medical condition. That's why we call it a spontaneous pneumothorax. So can develop a pneumothorax as a result of trauma, but a spontaneous pneumothorax is more likely to be something medical. So the problem that usually happens here is, is that if the lung is disrupted and some reason air escapes into the pleural cavity, um, then this creates more of a problem. This is where the air is now stuck inside that pleural cavity and it's going to create a problem. Now, spontaneous pneumothoraxes are, are pretty much, and I think we talk about this in class, that is going to be somebody who is typically younger, but uh, can also be somebody who has uh, a history of COPD. Blebs are going to be things that are little, little balloons that are kind of uh, developed inside of their uh, alveoli. And if those things become disrupted and they end up with air inside the chest cavity in that pleural space, can run into a problem. So when we assess these folks, we find out that their breath sounds are sometimes absent or really they're decreased on whatever side that may be. Another area that uh, you will hear people talk about quite frequently is to say, oh, I had to go to the hospital and they had to take fluid off of my lungs. Well, what they've probably done is they've done, uh, they've probably been diagnosed with a pleural effusion. And a pleural effusion is actually a collection of fluid that is outside the lung. So it's not inside the lung, it's actually outside the lung. 
and it compresses the lung and as a result the lung can't expand and it causes that shortness of breath. So this is something that could be a result of congestive heart failure, maybe cancer, or it could be some type of infection or even just an irritation. And these are folks who usually feel better just as soon as they sit up. Uh, people end up with obstructed airways, and really this is one of the biggest issues that, that occur in, the, uh, in our society today, is that patients are eating quickly and they, uh, it goes down the wrong pipe or whatever. You know, those are one type of issue. But another thing is that um, you're talking about um, maybe an aspiration as a result of somebody vomiting. Um, it may also be a foreign object that uh, somebody fell asleep, uh, they were laying on a couch and they were eating something and they aspirate that way. A lot of times it's because of uh, our issues with obstructed airways, truly because of improper positioning of the head, which now causes the tongue to block off that airway. So if a patient's eating just before they are onset of shortness of breath when you're talking about when did this occur, you always need to consider about the foreign body airway obstruction. Pulmonary embolism, um, I think we really didn't talk a whole lot about it earlier in this section. Um, so what a pulmonary embolism is, is really uh, uh, going to be a clot. Well, here's the issue. Embolism is anything that's inside that circulatory system that moves from a point of origin to another location and gets stuck there, right? So oftentimes with pulmonary embolisms, we talk about somebody may have had a deep vein thrombosis meaning that it was in their calf and it traveled somewhere, right? So when it travels somewhere, it goes through the circulation and then it cuts off completely or partially wherever the heck that thing stops. So an emboli though can also be fragments of blood clots. So it doesn't have to be just one, it can be multiple little blood clots that are gonna cause the problem and they just can't get through. So they may go in and affect a whole area, but it is multiple emboli that are causing the problem. They also can have different things to just form bodies or bubbles of air that may have gone through the system as well. So just keep in mind that when we're hooking up and assisting, uh, you know, an EMT is assisting with a paramedic and putting the IV line together that you need to flush the air out because that can be a problem. And the paramedic needs to make sure that they get rid of the extra air that may be inside of a syringe so that we don't cause an air embolism as well. So we had said that that pulmonary embolism is a blood clot, right? Well, this is one that circulates through the venous system in the right side of the heart, and then it gets lodged inside that pulmonary artery. So these are people that are usually complaining of shortness of breath. They're tachycardic, so their heart rate's over 100. They're tachypnic, so their respiratory rate's over 20. They um, are probably gonna be hypoxic, so it can be very mild to very severe. They may develop cyanosis where they're now blue. Uh, they are going to have uh, acute chest pain. And they may also develop what is going to be referred to as hemoptysis, um, where they're actually uh, bringing up some blood. Now, if you have a large enough embolism, it can cause enough of an obstruction that the patient can go into cardiac arrest. So it becomes important that when we find out that somebody may have a pulmonary embolism, that's something that you're suspecting of. We don't need that to be traveling anywhere, or I'm sorry, anywhere else. It's already stuck. So if you're thinking of a deep vein thrombosis, we don't need to make them get up and walk and go somewhere and then potentially cause a pulmonary embolism as well. 
Um, with hyperventilation, we kind of talked a little bit earlier about the fact that people can overbreathe, and uh, they can do it to a point in which their carbon dioxide levels fall. So I think at the beginning I had kind of talked about um, saying, hey, you know what, don't make them breathe into a brown paper bag. Absolutely you don't want to make them breathe into a brown paper bag. Um, because the body may actually be compensating for something such as acidosis, where there's a lot of acid that's been built up inside the blood or inside the tissues of the body, and it's trying to fix it. So this, in, in actuality, can result in alkalosis, where we're trying to reverse it and things get a little bit mixed up. We usually refer to a hyperventilation syndrome, though, as more along the lines of a panic or an anxiety attack. Um, which really comes on from anxiety. They can become dizzy. They get some numbness. Um, they will complain of some tingling in their hands and feet. And then they will get what are referred to as carpopedal spasms, that the lower that the CO2 level goes, uh, they will start getting spasms inside their hands and their feet. And it almost looks like they're all crinkled up. So whether or not hyperventilation is caused by some life-threatening illness or a panic attack, really is very hard for us to do in the out-of-hospital setting, hence the reason why um, we should really make sure that we're not um, uh, trying to treat that without any further information than once they're in the hospital, right? So you, you treat your patients, and we'll talk about those in a little bit. Now, pesticides, some cleaning solutions, and uh, chlorine and other gases that you may find around, whether or not they're in people's homes or they're in an industrial location, can become a problem. And these are things that are now going to potentially be inhaled. So carbon monoxide poisoning is one of those things that we worry about all the time. Uh, carbon monoxide monitors are on the rise. People are carrying them, or I'm sorry, people are putting more of them in their house than what they used to. And uh, pretty much to say that if you don't have a carbon monoxide alarm inside your house, you're probably like not hip, right? Um, but carbon monoxide monitors are also things that we should make sure that we have on our first in bags um, or our jump bags when we go into somebody's home so that we can make sure that we're not entering a dangerous situation. Now, carbon monoxide poisoning is a leading cause of accidental death in the United States, and usually it's a result of uh, some fuel-burning household appliances, and um, it doesn't have to necessarily be something that is horribly wrong. Um, it could be as simple as a leak that is inside of a stove or a hot water tank or a dryer when they're utilizing natural gas. That is fuel burning. Um, but don't forget the carbon monoxide is also present in all smoke. And we'll talk more about those when we get into toxic exposures as well. But if they have carbon monoxide poisoning, they may complain of some flu-like symptoms and even some shortness of breath. But of all things, make sure you don't put yourself at risk. And the best treatment for these folks right off the bat is high flow oxygen, typically by non-rebreather mask for anybody who is already con or who's still conscious. And in some cases, you may actually utilize CPAP. It may actually help um, to reduce some of that time. A uh, little bit of literature on that is still uh, not coming out and say this is the absolute thing that you should do, but it's something to consider. All right. Well, you know what? I think we're going to take a, um, a pause here and finish this up here on part one because um, uh, you know, I want to look at a little time here on, uh, dealing with some patient assessment. You know what? We're going to end this one right here. So, uh, hopefully you will come back and we will continue with respiratory emergencies part two with another Tim's takeaway. We'll see you in the next one.